I want to share with you a few thoughts from Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue in this series that I've entitled The Exchanged Life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And I'll be reading and sharing significantly in my thoughts and notes and the scripture from the Mirror Translation by Francois Dutois. Somebody might, I just <laughs> kind of heard it in my, well, that's not the Bible. That, that's not a real translation. Well, I don't know. What's, what's a good Bible translation for you? Somebody translated whatever translation you're reading. Some person or some group of men, you know that, right? I mean, like God didn't write it on tablets. <laughs> in English <laughs> so, so when, the, when the scribes and the apostles and the prophets and various ones actually wrote down they wrote in their original languages and, and then that was gathered and collected through the thousands of years hundreds, uh, tens, tens of thousands ten, not tens of thousands but thousands hundreds and hundreds of years over a course of time and then it was translated and retranslated and translated again I guess if what's important to you is to have a constitution where you take comfort in the fact that or the belief because everybody doesn't believe this this is what you would have to believe to, to say well God's not in that translation God's in this translation for instance the King James translation that's the only authorized translation what you'd have to be saying is that God dictated that like, like he, he spoke word for word in somebody's ear and dictated those words now there's people that believe that so the Bible becomes a constitution of moral behavior rather than a narrative by which God is giving us life and speaking to us and leading and guiding our, our steps and all that we do and all that we believe and how we worship him. So I find great life, very life-giving words and translation of the word of God in the mere translation. I've spoken enough about that, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Your salvation, watch this, is not a reward for good behavior here it is on the screen your salvation is not a reward for good behavior it was a grace thing from start to finish you had no hand in it even the gift to believe simply reflects his faith isn't that powerful even the ability to believe and to trust him isn't cast off on me. It's not reliant upon me and my ability. It's his faith. In fact, the word faith used in the epistles and most often by Paul is actually the word faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. A reward is something given or received in return for a particular action or behavior or achievement. 
It's often used to encourage or reinforce desired actions and outcomes. Is that what you did? Are you being rewarded for being strong in your faith? Are you being rewarded for believing accurately? Your salvation is not a reward. God's not leading you along. He's not trying to enforce an outcome or an action from you. You had no hand in it, Paul writes. You had no hand in it. And even the gift that you do exercise of trusting or believing what's written and believing in the Lord comes from God himself, comes from Jesus. It's actually Jesus' faith. Now that's powerful. Everything flows out of your sweet presence. I'm going to give you a little bit of background here on this. So I'm out mowing the lawn this weekend, and I felt the presence of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but in, in my walk with Christ, he comes to me. He speaks to me. He, now, he's not somewhere else. He lives in me. But there's times where it's like he just somehow the door to my mind and my soul and my emotions gets opened and all of a sudden he's standing there and he's speaking to me and I'm mowing the lawn and I just stop the mower and I, I grab my phone because I recognize this is something I should write down so here's what the Lord said Jeff everything flows out of my sweet presence I don't need you to sustain it. So I just started writing it per first person personal. Everything flows out of your sweet presence. So I started repeating this to the Lord. And I don't need to sustain it, make it happen, or try to bring it about. It isn't my power working in me, but yours to bring about the Father's will. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus is both the source and the conclusion of our faith. Man, I don't know what that does for you, but that just sets me on fire to know that God hasn't left me to myself and to know that even my believing and my trusting isn't in my own power. It's His faith. Even when I'm faithless, he's faithful. Even when I'm having difficulty believing something I've read in the Scripture, he believes it for me. Even when I have difficulty praying, he's praying for me. In fact, truth is, it's all past tense. He's already prayed for me. He's already believed for me perfectly. Now, there's a companion passage. Actually, it's all one passage there in these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through really verse 10, verse 11 are all one passage. Look here with me at verse 5. 
this is how grace rescued us. While we were yet in that state of deadness and indifference, in our deviations, which most translations have trespasses, in our trespass, in our sin, we were co-quickened together with Christ. This is how grace rescued us. While we were yet in the state of our deviations, we were co-quickened together with Christ. We had nothing to do with it. Grace freed us once for all from the lies that we believed about ourselves under the performance-driven system, and it now defines our, our, our authentic, authentic identity. I'm mixing up my A and my I there, aren't I? You know what, dear ones? Jesus didn't come to change you from being a sinner to being a good moral person. Jesus rescued me from the fallen mindset of performance-driven living. Grace frees me from religion's constant voice. Jeff, you're fallen. You're empty. You're unworthy. And rather, it reminds me that I already have everything I need. I'm complete in Jesus. In fact, he gives me his faith to believe all of this. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This word trespasses. Again, it means, as Francois has correctly translated it here, deviations from. It's not like God's standing there pointing his finger at you and saying, you unworthy mess, I see that sin in your life, and I'm going to punish you for it. No, when we deviate, when our sin, our trespass, causes us to deviate, He's there loving us back into relationship, back into where we should be. Here's the literal meaning of this Greek word now. Literally, it means to descend from a higher place to a low one, a lower one, to stop flying. That's what sin is. That's what all wickedness is. That's what, that's what all misbehavior is. That's what all immorality is. It's a deviation from the high place where you were flying to a lower place. It's beneath you. In fact, the only place where you and I are responsible for, quote, sin is in our attitude. Losing altitude speaks of minds, our mind's fallen mindset, falling from a higher place, descending from a higher place to stop flying. God didn't separate himself from you. I'm separated by my attitudes. I'm separated by a fallen mindset, not a sinful life. Jesus took care of the sin, sinful life, the sin question. Jesus answered. So it's a mindset that we have that keeps us in a place of low flying, if you will. And he says, look, I've rescued you from all of that. 
and your salvation is not a reward for good behavior it's just because I love you that I've done this thing and furthermore it's a completed action it's past tense so this phrase in the Greek that he has saved us out of wickedness that we're saved by grace literally says this by grace you are having been saved by grace you are having been saved now look at the difference in just the punctuation here depending on whether you're translating it and punctuating it the way most western evangelical people think about this and the way the Greek says it look at it with me here's modern western evangelical teaching and most translations by grace you are saved but here's how it reads in the Greek by grace you are having been saved see having been saved past tense then I'm everything God wants me to be now think about it let's go over it again here's the way it's more commonly referred to and how you will read it in most translations by grace you are saved yes good but incomplete in the Greek it actually says by grace you are having been saved <laughs> you're not waiting for anything you're not waiting to get good enough you're not waiting to serve him more passionately you're not waiting to join a church you're not waiting to get better to stop doing things to be a better moral person by grace you are you just are you're everything God wants you to be. You're perfect like you are right now in Him. Having been saved, well, what's that mean? He's already done it. You don't get saved by praying a prayer. He's already saved you. You don't get saved by coming to church. He's already saved you. You don't get forgiven by asking for forgiveness. He's already forgiven you. What we do when we come to Him in surrender is we agree with Him and acknowledge His forgiveness. We acknowledge that He has saved us. We acknowledge that He has made us whole and one. I love this verb that's used here in verse 8 and verse 5. Having been rescued. It indica indicates a complete action with continuing results. So there's what has already been done, and then there's the continuing results of what he did. He's already saved me, and now I'm walking in and experiencing the continuing results of that salvation. He's already rescued me from all that sin tried to bury me in and consume me with and now I'm walking in this life I'm walking in the joy and the freedom of the outcome of that salvation and again we had no 
contribution to our salvation. I want you to think about something. If there's a single thing you had to do to be saved, then you are saved by works. If there's one thing you had to add and you had to do in order for salvation to actually work and be yours, then you're not saved by grace. This rescue, it's not by grace. It's waiting for you to do something. And that's exactly the message that I grew up with. I didn't grow up with the freedom of something already done and past tense and now I'm walking in the fullness. And so when I do miss it, when I do fly below my completeness, fly below what God has authored for me, then I just come and I surrender and I acknowledge that. And he brings me right, right back. I'm in my mind. My mindset gets adjusted and I immediately begin to fly at a higher altitude once again. And I realize, wow, he never left me. He never left me in the middle of my darkest sin. He never left. He never went anywhere. I didn't get unsaved. So now I have to rededicate my life and get resaved. I grew up with that thinking. And maybe you did as well. And thank God there's a movement in the earth showing us this wonderful incarnation of Christ and that it's for every human being. And that what God did for the entire world, it's past tense. It's already done. It's complete. And there's nothing I can add Nothing I can do to get saved or to be saved. I just acknowledge it and I am. I am because it's what he did. It's a gift, not a reward. You see, this really is called a mystery. The scripture refers to it as a, the mystery of grace. We might call it the master plan. our inclusion in Christ's death and resurrection so for instance 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 now we may know even as we have always been known see the past tense of that here's God's perspective 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 very short verse of God's doing are we in Christ I'm not in Christ because I prayed. I'm not in Christ because I go to church. I'm not in Christ because I live a moral life. I'm in Christ because of God's doing. He saved me by His grace. Does that make sense? So God saw us, let's say it this way. God saw us in Christ before... God saw us in Christ... <clears throat> before we recognized ourselves there. God saw us in Christ before the world began, Paul writes in Ephesians. Before the fall of the world, the Lamb was slain. Wow. And I was in God's heart and already saved, and He already had dealt with the sin issue before I was even born. 
Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Before you were ever a glimmer in your parents' eyes, God had already done this work and saved us and delivered us. God saw us in Christ before we recognized ourselves. Do you realize there's, there's actually a prophetic declaration of this principle, this, this truth of incarnation, this master plan of God? There's actually a declaration of it in the Old Testament. And we find in Hosea, here's that verse. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Every Bible scholar, every theologian will tell you that Hosea 6, verse 2, is a prophetic declaration referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But reread it. After two days, he will revive us, plural, and on the third day, he will raise us up. Well, see, the Bible says you and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. When did that happen? Well, one time I was in a church, and, and at the end of the message, then the singing started, and people were crying and I felt real strong like I ought to go forward and I went forward and I shook the pastor's hand and they prayed for me there and I got saved no that was an emotional occasion where some doors opened for you especially to your emotions and your intellect and you recognized that you were saved but your salvation took place when Jesus hung on the cross, died and was raised again. In fact, your salvation took place in the heart and mind of God in eons past before the world was even created and Adam fell. Before all of that, the lamb was slain and our salvation was secured. You know what's interesting, and I didn't know this as I look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 2 there. This is the only Old Testament scripture that mentions the three-day or third-day resurrection, and it includes us. <laughs> it's the only place in all of the Old Testament that mentions the third-day resurrection, and I'm in there. I was co-crucified. I was co-buried. I was co-raised with Jesus. What a mystery. What a master plan. And what a great idea to leave you and me out of it. And just do it. <laughs> because you know we would have messed it up. Right? I mean, if it was left up to me, if it was something I needed to do. And so I just submit to you once again, dear ones, even the gift to believe comes from Jesus' faith. I've mentioned to you before, the name of a gentleman that uh, is a tremendous prophetic voice, present-day prophetic voice, travels, teaches. He's known internationally 
and he just writes prolifically. And I, I find many of his writings as well as his text messages, I'm on his text. I'm a follower. So I get texts from him. This came in this week, and I thought, how appropriate to our message today. You can never be closer to God than you are right now. The incarnation of Christ is the unitive factor, not your faith, not your repentance or your obedience, but His. What changes is not your proximity to the one who holds all things together in love, but rather your perspective. Faith does not create reality. It recognizes reality. In hearing the true gospel, we see past the lie of separation.